Our God is a missionary God, and we are His missionary people. You're listening to The Scent Life, the official podcast of the Center for Great Commission Studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. All right, folks, we are so glad that you joined us for our, our Scent Life podcast today. Uh, we have a return guest, uh, Keelan Cook, uh, with us. Keelan was on the uh, on the show a couple weeks ago, and we had a real good response to that. So we've decided uh, to invite him back as part of a regular uh, conversation partner for what we're calling our People's Next Door episode. And we want to do this once a month. Keelan uh, is our assistant director of Diaspora Missiology for the Center for Great Commission Studies. And so, Keelan, we're super excited that you've come back to us. Welcome back uh, from Houston, Texas. Glad you're here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Scott. Appreciate you jumping in. Like I said, we, we're going to make him be a regular contributor here. Uh, he brings wisdom and experience uh, through the time that he's here. Keelan, as we, as we think about ministry in among immigrants, ministry in the urban setting in North America, I was struck recently as we've been through several weeks, months, of uh, racial tension in America, riots, political conversations on the news, articles in Christian media. And there's a word that keeps coming up that I think is one we probably should discuss today. And that's the word gentrification. It just comes up as it relates to, to missions, as it relates to church planting and ministry, as it relates to different type of urban settings. So can you give us just a quick update in your studies, your research, your experience, uh, talk to us a bit about gentrification. What is it, and how does it affect uh, the Christian mission and church planting in urban or, or downtown settings? Yeah, sure. So, excellent question. Uh, gentrification, kind of a hot-button topic. It's been a hot-button topic, really, for years now, as kind of the urbanization swing has kicked back up. This word gentrification has started showing up in a whole lot of different places, but it's, I think, it especially sensitive because of some of the racial tension that we've been seeing in the news, seeing kind of play out, particularly in some of our urban centers over the last several months. So gentrification as an idea, there's a lot of different people that are going to give you some fuzzy answers on what it is and isn't or how to define it and how, how not to define it. But in general, if you want to talk about gentrification, I think the shorthand idea here is you have a neighborhood that started out at one socioeconomic level and over a series of months to years has rapidly changed to a different kind of socioeconomic level. Uh, gentrification in specific is an area that has been what people would have classed in the past as perhaps inner city or a lower economic area. Oftentimes it's a historically black or a minority, a majority minority neighborhood of some kind in, in a city that has, through re urban renewal movements or redevelopment of some kind, completely flipped. Uh, so it was, like I said, this historic neighborhood and has since been redeveloped. It's been reshaped. And you have new business, new industry, a different class and kind of uh, establishment shows up and it changes the fabric of the neighborhood. That's essentially what gentrification is in a, a nutshell that's helpful in this conversation. And Keelan, let's dig a little bit deeper into that. Uh, so using that definition of rapid change in a neighborhood or a section of the community. And again, that rapid change impacting everything from kind of social classes to economics to industry. 
uh, even to the, the groups of people that live there. So this rapid change, uh, you're talking about, you used words like um, renewal or development. So the question is, you know, we're familiar with change. I mean, clearly uh, inter introducing this segment and even the times in which we live, there's a lot of change and oftentimes it happens quickly. Uh, and with any change and quick change, uh, there's gonna be good and bad. And so with gentrification, uh, again, if you were to do a quick Google of that word, you can come up with uh, 10 blog posts on the negative impact of gentrification. Uh, and then you can come up with 10 blog posts on the positive impact of gentrification. So, so which is it? Uh, again, change is inevitable. Uh, in some form or fashion. And, and typically we like our change to push us forward. But what about gentrification? Why is this good? Again, in your experience, and maybe why is it not good? Yeah, so that kind of gets to the crux of it, doesn't it? One of the things that we've got to consider, because uh, I think a lot of times we don't consider this, all neighborhoods are always in transition. That's true of any context anywhere on the planet. It's very easy for us when we start trying to look at a, a neighborhood, a city, a community, to think of them as static entities, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not how they work. They're more of a stream than they are a field in that regard. Over time, things are slowly changing everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they're changing by getting more wealthy. They're changing by uh, getting, I don't know, some form of cultural transition or they're changing by getting economically depressed, right? So we see that neighborhoods are always in some kind of transition. Mm -hmm. What makes gentrification it's specifically so striking is two things. One, it typically happens in a rapid transition. And two, it's heavily weighted into an economic transition, hmm. if that makes sense. And so what winds up happening is gentrification heads from a lower economic setting or a lower economic context one that is a higher economic context and it does so quickly. That creates in a neighborhood that is in the midst of gentrification a split in the narrative of that context. Mm. That's one of the reasons this is such a significant thing. Most neighborhoods don't have a culture or most communities don't have a culture. They have multiple cultures that exist on top of each other in their setting and that's just kind of how that works. Different social circles of people kind of exist in their own narratives. Well, gentrification brings two very different narratives on top of each other in a way that can often be combative. Okay. Huh. And it depends on which side of the coin, so to speak, uh, you view it from as to whether or not you think this is a great thing in a neighborhood or it's a, a bad thing in a neighborhood. Really easy example here. So when I was doing some research up in Washington, D.C. for uh, trying to do, well, just urban research on, on how neighborhoods worked and mapping out peoples and some of those kind of things, the mission house that I was stationed in was right on a line between uh, two neighborhoods uh, that were in the midst of gentrification. If I went out my door to the left, I ran into a historic African-American neighborhood. If I went out my door to the right, then I wound up running into what people would like to call an urban renewal movement. Hmm. Uh, you had upwardly mobile, you had well-educated, you had all these new businesses that were going up, uh, you had renovation of old historic buildings to bring them up to speed. And the fascinating thing about it, if I walked to the right, there was a general sense of optimism among my neighbors. Hmm. Look at all of the renewal. Look at all of the revitalization that is happening around us. 
if I walked to the left, there was a general sense of pessimism among mm-hmm. my neighbors because instead of seeing renewal, they were seeing land grabbing. Hmm. Okay. So you wind up oftentimes in gentrification, a transition of ownership, both of the cultural identity of the neighborhood, but often of the property and land value of the neighborhood as well. And so what winds up happening is a historic neighborhood that had a narrative there, maybe even for generations, finds themselves staring at what may be the end of their community in that neighborhood because they're getting outpriced. Wow. So the sociological crisis is that people can no longer afford to live in their homes, no longer afford to live in the neighborhood they've grown up in or their family is from. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, and, and so you do, you wind up with this weird kind of two sides of the coin. Some people look at it as, as making the neighborhood better. Some people see it as having the neighborhood taken away from them because it, economically it, it outstrips them. So isn't the idea, and again, we'll pick at this a little bit, and then I want to, I want to turn just a little bit and and talk about the role of, of the church in in one of these communities. But before I get there, so painting this picture of gentrification, what should be, and again, I'm I'm using broad brush strokes, and I know there's conversation on both sides. It it seems like they would say, hey, there's a, a community, uh, this section, uh, or a neighborhood that the idea is to move it forward and and forward. I'm going to use positively right here. Uh, We're going to do that socially, culturally, economically with the idea that whoever's in this community, at least from my understanding and reading would be that there is more access to uh, resources, even things like maybe schools, uh, things of that nature. Perhaps it's uh, other industry uh, that there will be more opportunity. But what you're telling us is that oftentimes while that can be a perspective of some, that oftentimes those kind of from the historical narrative, and again, there might be multiple narratives, uh, that in fact gentrification almost builds up more walls uh, and, and gives them less access to things. And, and to use Scott's wording, that they get outpriced uh, and essentially get moved out of this narrative, this geographic location. And so what was meant possibly for Uh, good for a community actually slices up the community even more, if I can put it that way. Yeah, that's a true statement about gentrification in a lot of places. Uh, You've got to keep in mind, there's a bunch of cities around the country and big urban centers may have multiple areas within their urban center that are gentrifying. So they're all, they're all going to be a little different in the way that happens. And there's probably some great examples of gentrification around the country. And there's some really bad examples around the country. That said, some common themes you do see, and certainly one of the fears that you get from those that were in the neighborhood before gentrification started to happen, so the historic narrative for the neighborhood. There's kind of two things that tend to be real concerns. One is a cultural washing of the neighborhood. Um, Our neighborhood had a cultural identity prior to. It had a history. It had a people. It had a, a flavor to it, so to speak. But in order to make the neighborhood more economically productive, so to speak. We're going to wash over that and create, oftentimes there's this, there's a running joke among a lot of urbanists about the bland culture that gentrification creates because it's kind of a non-culture, so to speak. Right. Right. Uh, okay. You've got a whole bunch of Starbucks and Chipotle's and things like that that move in and it's this generic feel and uh, and so people are afraid that they're 
their identity of their neighborhood is going to go away. The story is going to cease to be told there. Uh, the other thing, though, is that economic displacement that occurs. So I'm afraid our narrative is going to go, but I'm also afraid I'm going to go. And oftentimes what winds up happening is those people have to leave the neighborhood altogether. Okay. They are, they're, they're outpriced. And so displacement, sometimes it's a result of uh, gentrification. And when that occurs, uh, of course, you, you wind up, that group doesn't even have a representation in the neighborhood anymore. Yeah, which is a serious problem. I mean, you have people who lose their homes, they, they lose their identity, they're pushed out. And so that's a, a real problem. Ken, can you, as we're talking more generically about gentrification, how it works, can you give us some more specific examples, maybe some that our hearers would be familiar with, maybe some areas where gentrification is happening, maybe some that would be more problematic, and then even some that may be considered more positive, if you can, if you can do that. Do you, do you mind just giving us, because uh, I think as our hearers are trying to, okay, I'm trying to place what's going on, how can I imagine there's some, some locations that may be, that we may commonly identify and be able to see this and understand what's happening? Yeah, sure. So some high profile areas that are kind of known for gentrification right now, either good or bad. It's unless you've got eyeballs on some of these neighborhoods, it's kind of hard, hard to know or see. But uh, I mentioned DC earlier. Uh, DC, you can actually look up, there's a number of articles in particular on the neighborhood that I was talking about. So the Shaw neighborhood in DC is undergoing some pretty extensive gentrification right now. And it's a very easy example of hearing two narratives that speak very differently about what's going on in that area. Uh, and there's a voice of the historic Shaw neighborhood that is pushing back pretty hard on some of the gentrification that's happening there. We have neighborhoods here in Houston uh, mm -hmm. that are the same. There's a neighborhood on the east side of downtown in uh, Houston that has the same kind of gentrification going on. It's not historically African-American, though. It's historically uh, Hispanic, primarily Mexican in that, that area. And so you've got this kind of rich cultural tradition there that the existing residents are fearful that they're going to get you know, pressed out of the neighborhood, and so is their story and their history as a community here in Houston. So wow. those are a couple of examples of at least the fear of it doing so, or in actuality, the practice of it doing so in certain places. As far as the shining example of positive gentrification, that's a lot harder to name one sure. okay. uh, because they don't make the news. Right. Uh, it's about perspective, I would think. Certainly. Certainly. Uh, and you do, you've got, it really depends on what side of that coin you're on as to whether or not you think it's a good thing that's happening or a bad thing that's happening. In general, though, and Greg, you pointed this out earlier, I think it's an important thing to talk about in gentrification. If we want to try to gentrify an area wisely, if that can be said, uh, the way that you would do so is trying to find a balance between that tension of increasing opportunity without increasing barrier to opportunity, mm, if that makes one. sense. And that's a really hard balance to strike, sure. particularly when they're, the individuals that are pushing it are pushing it because they have an economic stake in it, right? Like if I'm a business that wants to be in that area, I want to be there so that I can make money. It's challenging if that's what you're trying to attempt with it to be able to, to run that razor's edge. So this has been helpful so far. We're going to take a, a brief break here, but when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Keelan Cook about gentrification and specifically uh, what is the role of the church uh, in one of these communities that is either experiencing or has experienced gentrification?
So thank you so much for tuning into this episode of The Scent Life. Uh, this episode is brought to you by or sponsored by the People's Next Door Initiative. People's Next Door Initiative is a, is a movement of Christians, churches, concerned people who are asking questions about taking the gospel to those uh, who are moving in and coming from around the world, uh, trying to ask the question, how is it that we can make disciples of all nations as we watch the nations move next door? You can find more about uh, the People's Next Door Initiative by going to thepeoplesnextdoor.com. That's peoplesnextdoor.com. Or you can look at the website uh, by Keelan Cook, K-E-E-L-A-N Cook, C-O-O-K, Com. Both of these would get you to uh, information about the People's Next Door Initiative. Again, the founder of this initiative is our very own Keelan Cook, uh, who uh, is the Assistant Director of Diaspora Missiology for the Center for Great Commission Studies uh, at Southeastern Seminary. So we appreciate them and their sponsorship for this program. So check out peoplesnextdoor.com to find out more about the People's Next Door Initiative. And you're listening to the Scent Life podcast. We've been having a conversation with Keelan Cook, part of our monthly series on People's Next Door. Uh, and so, Keelan, we're talking today about gentrification. We, we've learned a lot in the first part of the podcast. But now uh, the question is, uh, in one of these communities or in one of these neighborhoods where a church finds itself uh, and, and it's experiencing, uh, it's on the edge of gentrification. You talked about different narratives going on. You talked about Really, it depends on the perspective where you find one finds themselves as to is gentrification a positive or is it problematic? And so, Keelan, uh, help us out if uh, for our those listening that are a part of a church, leading a church in one of these communities, what what role does the church have in a gentrified or gentrifying area, and what kind of perspective should a church have uh, if they're in one of these areas? What do you think? Yeah, so this is where this conversation gets really important as far as I'm concerned. Uh, how do we as the church think well about the Great Commission if gentrification is true in a community? How do we do that, right? Mm -hmm. So two or three questions here that I think are all spun around this one. One, if I am a church plant and I see that neighborhood and I think that's an area that needs a church, how do I go about doing that? Uh, if I am an existing church, though, and my neighborhood is transitioning around me, uh, how do we how do we think about that question as well? Because those churches are probably going to come at it from uh, some different angles. Uh, but one of the things that is the same regardless, you've got to be able to think as a church about the fact that, as we were saying earlier, gentrification creates uh, multiple and usually competing narratives inside of that community. You wind up with groups that are opposed to one another. That's a good point. Not just coexisting they're opposed to one another. Hmm. It is very easy for a church to unintentionally identify with one or the other, and in doing so, cut off their opportunity to have a voice with the one that they did not identify with, hmm. if you're not careful about that. Easy example here, the church plant that's going into a neighborhood, and, and gentrifying neighborhoods are often the kind of neighborhoods that attract a church planting team, just in general. There looks like there's a lot going on in that neighborhood. And so you see it, and it looks active. And again, if you're coming from 
a upwardly mobile kind of majority culture group in that area, you may see it as a benefit. And so you look at that area and you're like, oh, things are revitalizing. There's renewal here. We can go be part of what is coming into this neighborhood. Hmm. And if you're not careful as you do that, particularly depending on where that neighborhood is in gentrification, uh, if, it has, if businesses have moved in, but people have not moved in yet and hmm. displaced the old residents, you've now planted a church that looks like it is part of the displacement movement wow. to those that are being replaced. Wow. So that, it sounds like a painful opportunity. I think we've all heard church planters or, or church planting teams who are going into an urban setting and they use phrases like, we're going to go plant a gospel church in this place. There's no gospel church as if the implication is there is no church already in this, uh, uh, in this area. Is that, is that a common uh, phrase? Am I missing something there? No, you're not missing anything at all. So that particular phrase very frequently grinds my gears. Uh, <laughs> here's why. Uh, now, it is probably true in certain neighborhoods of certain urban centers. So there are places in the U.S. that there are very few evangelical churches in those neighborhoods. Let's throw that on the table. However, in most of our cities, particularly if we're talking down here in the southeastern United States, uh, I'll take Houston as an example. That's where I am. If I have heard come out of a young church planter's mouth once here in Houston, I've surveyed the area where I want to plant, and there's just not a gospel-centered church there. I've heard it a dozen times, and quite frankly, that's just not true of any zip code in the Houston metro. Wow. <laughs> and so they say that, and I immediately know the answer is not true because I work with a network of about 400 churches here in Houston, and I know our map. And that doesn't mean all of our churches are killing it, but it does mean I know there's a gospel footprint in a lot of those places. And that's just our one Baptist network. There are several other like-minded evangelical groups that are spread out around our city. Uh, the thing that that tends to reveal, though, uh, and I, I, you can start stepping on some toes here, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. So the thing that's that okay. tends to reveal is I have probably wound my cultural opinion of what a gospel-centered church looks like wow. around the idea of being gospel-centered. And so what I mean is there's not a church in that neighborhood that looks like the way I do church. Uh, that's a good point. Ouch. That's, so, so basically you look at the historical church that's been there, that's been ministering in a community for years and years, and some different culture person looks around and just completely overlooks that church as if it's an unimportant feature in the area. Yeah. That's, that's painful. They become, they become wallpaper. Mm, wow. uh, and, uh, and that comes to one of the other pieces that I think is very significant to answer Greg's question. Uh, okay. So what is good missions method here? Yes. Uh, I think the answer to that is partnership is key. So okay. if we're talking about two competing narratives and we're talking about groups that are often combative with one another, then we do well not to go in as an island and appear to be some kind of like our church is the answer to your neighborhood's problem. That typically undercuts your purpose. Right. Whereas if you can go into a neighborhood realizing those competing narratives and the fact that you may be, uh, whether you mean to be or not, you may be automatically identified with the side that is currently gentrifying the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Doing your due diligence to get to know the churches that exist in the area well enough to know if there are any viable church partners for you and then partnering with those churches in some ways that demonstrate how the gospel can unite across even that cultural difference that occurs in gentrification, then you're in a situation where you're not going to overlook one of the narratives. 
That's great. It calls for humility on behalf of the church planter, doesn't it? I mean, that's a, absolutely. That's a key element of, of being a, a, a good resident of the community that God sends you into. Well, yeah, and it, it seems, I mean, honestly, that's going to be a continuous battle because we all know, again, broad brushstroke, but oftentimes church planters, uh, those involved kind of uh, pushing ministry forward in areas, uh, we look for the entrepreneur, right? which, you know, that, that seems to push forward perhaps some of the, the negative narrative that can happen associated with gentrification, yet yet one of the things that should be true is this idea of partnership, which requires a posture of learning and humility uh, and really listening. And particularly for a lot of young church planters, that's a difficult lesson to learn. <laughs> sure. And it's, frankly, it's difficult for just a lot of our established churches. We've done a really good job of letting the cultural idea of individualism work its way into the way that we do church, mm -hmm. uh, just here, here in North America in general. And that's, that's not the way you see things in the New Testament, right? Like churches right. are working together. They're forming missionary teams together. They're sending each other money. They're, they're fellowshipping with one another as they have the opportunity. And the churches in the New Testament, they don't seem to think that our church can solve all the problems without the help of other churches. They just don't seem that way, right? Yeah. But I feel like we've defaulted to that position a little too much. Uh, in a number of our churches here, and it, it tends to cause those little silos, and they become unhelpful. Yeah, so this has been really good, our last kind of 30 seconds here. Uh, so how would you end this as we, we think about uh, gentrification and shifts and changes uh, in our own communities and neighborhoods and, and the role of the, the church for those that are in those communities and in those churches, those thinking about? Maybe it's some sort of church planting or other ministry, is there one last thing you would say, hey, this is key in terms of uh, a resource, uh, just a good reminder, and you've given us a lot, but what's one last thing you would say to our listeners just to help as they uh, really navigate this, these ideas of gentrification, different narratives, uh, and really the role of the church in those communities? Yeah, so two things real quick. One, don't shy away from neighborhoods that are in gentrification. They are strategic places for us to be about the Great Commission. In fact, there's some significant need there, though it is, it's complicated. So that's one, don't shy away from them. We need to press into them, in fact. Two, the best way to do so without unwittingly taking a side in that issue is to go into that neighborhood and do a whole lot of learning mm. before you do a lot of saying, mm. before you do a lot of planning and deciding about how to do it. Try to get to know the area well and try to try to get to know the story from both sides as best as possible. Mm. Um, and then that, that tends to set you up for uh, to be more likely to have success in your ministry there. No, that's fantastic. Again, thank you, Keelan. We look forward to having you back for those listening. Uh, thank you for listening to the Scent Life podcast. Again, we, we have a missionary God and we are his missionary people. And so, Keelan, let me pray uh, and then we'll say goodbye until next time. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for uh, the opportunities that you give us. Uh, we are uh, in a world right now uh, that has and is experiencing a lot of change. And Lord, that's not new, uh, but sometimes it can unsettle us. And so even as we talk about changing dynamics in neighborhoods and communities, Lord, I pray for all of us, and particularly those that are trying to minister in significant ways in these changing, even gentrifying uh, communities and neighborhoods, Lord, 
help us any conversation that we're in, uh, any, any ideas and, and visions we have for a community, any place we enter, we would always consider that we are the least important people mm. in that conversation, uh, in that room, in those plans. Uh, Lord, for those ministers, those churches, those church planters, uh, that they would uh, listen, listen well to the people and to the narratives because the gospel does bring about healing. The gospel does bring about reconciliation. And the gospel really is the hope, uh, whether it be a, a dying community or neighborhood, a renewing community or neighborhood, or somewhere in the middle. Uh, and so, Lord, thank you for these reminders today and help us to serve you and love you and point people towards Jesus. Amen.